This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series from inside the literary world. My name is Gemma Birrell, and I'll be speaking with some of the world's most interesting and visionary writers and creative icons about what they're working on now and how they balance life and art. Today I'm speaking with Charlotte Wood, one of Australia's finest, most original writers. Charlotte is the author of six novels, a collection of interviews called The Writer's Room, Love and Hunger, a book about cooking, and The Luminous Solution, about creativity and resilience that's just come out. It's so wise and filled with energy and inspiration and really useful openness and honesty. And it isn't just for writers and artists, but for anyone wanting to enrich their inner life. I think the best description I've read is from writer Alsa Piper, who describes it as a magnificent book of consolation, inspiration, completely individual observation, scholarship, honesty, wisdom and wonder. Charlotte also has two podcast series, and one is called The Writer's Room, and the other, exploring food, biology and eating, is Eat Like the Animals. Her novel The Weekend is funny, tender and often uncomfortable, and won the Arbia Literary Fiction Book of the Year. The Natural Way of Things was a bestseller and published internationally. It won various awards, including the Stella Prize and the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction. Charlotte, hello. It's so good to have the chance to speak with you today. Hi, Gemma. So lovely to speak with you, even if we cannot see each other just yet. Can you start by describing where you are speaking from and what your neighbourhood and local community is like? Sure. I am speaking from my little studio in the backyard of our house in Marrickville. It's kind of like a shed, a room on top of a shed. <laughs> um, and it's pretty noisy around here. You might hear a plane or two, I hope not, but um, it's kind of a pretty busy area. We live right near a shopping centre, so lots of people coming and going and um, just near a lovely park at Enmore Park. So it's actually a really good area of the city, but I do find it incredibly noisy, especially when I'm trying to write. So it has its pros and cons, but it's a great um, neighbourhood, you know, lots of cool people and things and, you know, in, uh, sort of arty makers and little businesses um, doing cool stuff. So it's a really nice part of the city. And do you know a lot of people? Are you friends with your neighbours? Yeah, not without. Well, we, we have great neighbours who are about to move out. I'm so sad. Um, but I have friends around the hood, like in the same street. I've got a couple of friends and around the block and, you know, I was years ago. I was in the community garden, just not far from here. So, I met some really lovely people who I would not have met otherwise, um, and they're you know in the neighbourhood. So it's nice. It's that thing where you can you know drop off some biscuits to the doorstep or whatever, and you're just five minutes away. Makes such a difference, though, doesn't it? It really does. It is a nice thing, especially in lockdown time. And how have you been dealing with lockdown in the last year? Oh, well, I've gone pretty nuts. Look, it's been fine, ostensibly, and I have absolutely nothing to complain about. I don't have to, I don't have any kids to homeschool. I don't have elderly parents in locked away in nursing homes like some of my friends, which is really stressful and distressing. So Sean, my partner, and I find his business has been amazingly okay he runs an art transport business um which we thought at the beginning was going to you know crash and burn but turned out that um buying art was something people really wanted to do in the lock in the pandemic um so we, you know we've survived really well really but i've still i've really missed seeing my family and seeing sean's family and just seeing people in the flesh so I will be so happy when that's over. And also I normally write um, at a house that we rent up on the central coast and I've desperately missed that because it is super quiet there and in the middle of nature all around and mm. that that is something I'm, has really affected how I've worked in the past, especially this past three months. In this conversation, we are going to kind of weave um, between giving some more context to your writing life and also looking at this brilliant new book of yours and its kind of observations about the life of an artist and the process. So 
Going back, can you describe when you knew you wanted to be a writer and actually thought you could be a writer, which for many people, of course, are very different things? Mm. Well, I certainly wasn't one of those people who always wanted to be a writer or thought that's what I wanted to do. Like I'd never, I didn't write when I was a child and all that sort of stuff. I did love English at school. I loved writing essays. I loved, you know, I was one of those nerdy, top-of-the-class English students. I had amazing English teachers in my little country town high schools. It's a lot about that, isn't it? Hugely. Like I feel like I owe my whole life to them, really. Um, And I don't think I ever thought I could write because I never thought I would have anything to say. But I went to university as a mature age student at the ancient age of 23 and I thought I was you know a grandmother compared to all the 18 year olds um and I did I started doing creative writing classes there and I really loved it and I sort of thought oh maybe I could write a story or something but I still never thought I would be a writer because I knew I would never be able to write a novel for example because I didn't have an idea for a novel I didn't know I didn't have anything to say. Um, So I just sort of dabbled really writing little vignettes and I wouldn't even call them short stories. They weren't even, you know, that structured enough. But um, I had a wonderful, wonderful writing teacher, Joan Phillip there. And so I sort of, you know, dabbled around doing that and then I left uni and I can I just quickly ask were there things that you still remember that you use from her uh yes I I think it was just the really close observation you know detail physical detail that sort of stuff I then went on to do further classes later on um where I met my kind of best writing mates really um but the, the point, there was a turning point, which was after my mother died, and my father had already died when I was 19, and my mum died when I was 29, and I had one of those moments where, that I think anyone who's had, you know, a serious crisis in their life will probably recognise, where you suddenly see things very clearly in terms of what matters to you and what doesn't matter to you. And I realised very urgently that writing really mattered to me. It was really important. I wanted to try it properly. I didn't want to sort of muck around anymore thinking, oh, maybe I'll do that one day when I get time or when I, you know, feel more confident or all those things um, that stop you. And I just thought, right, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make it central in my life and I'm going to finish something. And that was my only ambition was to finish something. So I took myself off to community writing classes um, and I met some other people in those classes who still, one of whom still, you know, one of my closest writing friends, Vicky Hastridge. Um, And then I met other people through Varuna, the writer's house, and, you know, sort of built my little network And I wrote my first novel in my early 30s. And I think it was published when I was about, it was either 34 or 35 because I just snuck under the wire of the best young novelist thing in the Herald, which I think was 35, the cutoff. Um, So, you know, it was just a feeling of I want to try really, I want to work really hard. And that was the, the turning point rather than waiting for some ideal conditions to descend in which to write. And what was that process and those early years like for you just in terms of actually getting published? Was it a difficult thing? Did you get an agent? Was it a kind of something that happened quite effortlessly? Well, not the process of writing it, but the getting published bit? The process of writing it was not effortless, and but the very strange thing is that my first publication experience was bizarrely easy. So, but my second one wasn't. But I'll come to that. <laughs> um, I 
I think I said I, I was involved with Varuna, the writer's house, yeah. and I, you know, applied for a couple of fellowships there and got them and had great, you know, mentoring and advice and stuff. And then I met my first agent there. It was Fran Bryson. And she, you know, heard me read a little bit from this book in progress and said, look, when you've finished, I'd like to see it. Um, so it was very weird. I also had a, a mentorship with Judith Luke and Amundsen, who's a very amazing editor. Mm. She was the one who said, look, would you like me to um, send your book to um, Picador, it was then. And I hesitated for about a billionth of a second and said, yes, please. So the weird thing was that by the time I – it was about two weeks and I had a, an agent and a publisher mm. and I thought, oh, my God, I thought that was going to be really hard but it was so easy and that was all fine. But then I got the big shock with my second novel which was then rejected by that publisher and I had – a much well, it was then taken up by my hero Jane Paul Freeman. <laughs> so it all turned out absolutely for the best. Who's been my publisher ever since? Mm. But it was it was an incredible shock to my system because I'd been, you know, I felt that I'd ah oh, the first publication experience is really difficult, mm. and once you're published, then you're all okay. And of course, I've since learned that my experience is the experience of so many people that actually the second novel is sometimes harder to get published than the first. Now, there's a few different places in your book of essays, The Luminous Solution, where you describe writing so beautifully, Charlotte, as as though you're in a circus tent and you say, in my mind's eye, the unfolding performance of my novel has always taken place in the hushed dark of a richly textured circus tent. So is that an image that you've had from the beginning, like where did it come from? And um... No, it was not from the beginning. And, in fact, it's really relatively recent. And it came about because I hit a period of real um, terror, basically. When I was writing The Natural Way of Things, I just got into a state of deep... um, I don't know how to describe it. It was it was sort of actual fear mm. of what I was writing, of why I was writing it, um, of this sort of dark place that I had to go into every day in my mind. Mm. And I was thinking, why am I doing this? What am I adding to the world? Just sort of ugliness and um, I don't know, sort of misogyny, which is what the book was about. And I, I just went into a real slump of depression I suppose and I got some help from a psychologist called Alison Manning who is a friend of mine and we had done some work together Um, she particularly works with writers in a fantastic little boutique practice called A Mind of One's Own and she sort of talked me through some ways to to get around this terrible fear that I had Mm. Um, I around that same time came across this study of um, it was a meta-analysis of 25 years of mood and creativity research um, because I had also started a PhD and I was looking at cognitive processes of creativity and this um, study talked about three different um, aspects of what they just you know decided after all these 25 years of research and they looked at all the studies and said right there are three main um, factors in the most creative mood state and mm. those things were uh, a positive affect you know po- feeling positive rather than full of fear and <laughs> loathing um, a they said a slightly elevated activation, so it meant a kind of slight um, energy activation rather than feeling totally zen or absolutely agitated. It was just a slightly elevated um, energy level. And then the third thing was what they called a promotion focus, which meant uh, seeking pleasure, seeking gain rather than avoiding pain. Mm. 
So then I had to kind of change. That sort of really interested me that that there was actually this documentation of, you know, obviously people are different and people work in different ways, but this was what this research was saying. And I was willing to go with it because I was pretty desperate. So one of the ways that I could sort of change my mindset was to to think about my work as a place where something fantastic might happen mm-hmm. rather than a place that I was scared to go to because of all the terrible things that were there. Um, and so this idea of the circus tent came into being as a, that I, it also helped me to think about my work as, or myself as just allowing the work to happen rather than having to kind of wrestle it to the ground or drag it out of myself, which I have felt at times. Um, so it just seemed to take the pressure off to think, okay, I'm going into this really private, quite not so private anymore now, I'm blabbing about it everywhere, but anyway, <laughs> um, quiet space. And only if I leave certain things outside of that space, like the fear and the, the kind of contempt for my work that I often had, you know, all the doubt and all that stuff that is so draining. Um, once I let that outside, I could go into this place and watch something unfolding. And that would be my book, you know. So the scenes of my novel would sort of happen in front of me and I would just write them down. Mm. I know it sounds very kind of, you know, I don't know, oogie boogie, airy fairy or something. Um, but, and I felt kind of slightly embarrassed at, you know, doing this. But I was also so desperate that I was like, I had nothing to lose. And it really changed. It really changed the way that I felt about coming into the writing room. Um, I mean, I still have to, I still have to um, work my way back to it all the time. I still kind of default to this strange, fearful position, which I still don't really understand. But once I, if I can get to that place in my mind of thinking, oh, I wonder what's going to happen today. You know, how interesting mm. rather than, oh, God, I've got to go in there and it's going to be terrible and my writing's going to be shit and, you know. It's interesting what you say because I think um, you, you also refer to this in different ways throughout the essays and, and that's the ability to see the problems within yourself and what you can revert to and, and how to counter them, you know, like this kind of – and one of the things that I really loved, funnily enough, within The Luminous Solution, in addition to the wisdom, was was the feeling of curiosity but also of joy. Like there's a certain kind of visceral delight that you have in talking about the process and the, the heat-seeking, I love that description, and the idea ideas behind the writing. And I thought that was really interesting because that's kind of what I was left with, even though you also talk about... Um, things like the grumpy struggle, which is a great term, the grumpy struggle. Yeah, the grumpy struggle, that, that's a quote from Janet Burroway, the American writer, and she talked about the process, her process of writing was uh, the grumpy struggle, despair and the luminous solution, which is obviously where the title comes from. And it was that the grumpy struggle to get herself to the desk then sort of struggling on and then I think she said the luminous solution that comes in the bed or the bath um, and then she says repeat, repeat, repeat. So it's this sort of cycle, it's cycling all the time, this sort of problem finding, problem solving, um, going through these cycles of um, difficulty and then, um, you know, sometimes elation when you finally hit on a connection that you think you've, you've had these two things that you want to keep in the book but you can't find the relationship between them and then suddenly after a period of grumpy struggle um, the solution appears or the connection appears and you know I think in a way that's why writers keep doing it for that that feeling of oh I've just suddenly understood something that I didn't know before and this bringing these things together has resulted in what Richard Forder calls new logics at the joining point of things that you wouldn't think go together. So, um, yeah, there's, you know, 
as I, I hope I make clear, different writers, different artists have completely different processes. And this book is really written really from my own experience over, you know, several decades now, um, but also in reading what other people say and in talking to visual artists and watching um, other artists at work, but not even artists, not just artists, like scientists and chefs and, you know, um, people I know who run really cool businesses. That, that sort of creativity is at play in, in loads of different areas of life. So I was sort of really hoping that the book would speak to people who are not artists, but people who want to um, just think about enriching their own sort of inner world, for want of a better word. Mm. And I think there's something consoling and almost comforting in addition to being inspiring. I mean, inspiring is a strange word. It's kind of so overused in a sense, but it is. And I think also in addition to hearing about your experience, it is, it is as you say, hearing about the other artists, like, you know, people like Patrick White who described a bloody mess, which which is, is comforting because you know that great art is then created, you know, so everyone has those difficult places yeah they do and I for me it was important to find a way out of that difficult place because I was just so miserable you know and I've seen this with other writers I know that you know you you get your first couple of books out and then you feel sort of optimistic about things and then after a while you realize oh it's actually much harder than I thought to keep going and quite often you know I've seen writers go into really deep depression because the life is actually can be very very difficult and I don't think people really you know because we don't really talk about it publicly very much that you know the the borderline or actual poverty that most writers live in is incredibly um exhausting uh, always needing to earn money from other sources, which leaves you no time to work, which leaves you no time, you know, for your family or whatever. So it's really stressful. Um, and then, you know, once you do produce a book, the, you know, often you feel it just, it, it comes out, you've worked on it so hard, you send it out and it just sort of vanishes. Um, so those things, those external things, you realise fairly early on are not a reason to keep going because there's there's no control that you have over them. So what you then do is look inward really uh, to the process and what you get out of the process of doing it. And almost, I was saying to someone the other day, I sort of feel like once a book is out in the world, it's almost none of my business. Like I can't... Um, control what happens to it can't can't have any influence over whether people like it or not and did it take you a long time to learn to yeah, let go yeah I mean and a long and painful time <laughs> um and I think I think in a way it's worse for writers now I think they're kind of I think there's this sort of I think it's a mythology that you know you should take control of your, you know, promotion and, and yes, you know, of course you should do what you can do to help your publisher promote your book. But I think a lot of young new writers uh, spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, social media and platforms and getting stuff out there instead of actually just writing. Well, it's such a distraction. I mean, how do you deal with that? Do you have any, do you have much kind of... Are you on social media much? I'm on Instagram, and which is sort of linked to a Facebook page, but I pretty much never look at it. I deleted my Twitter account in 2017. Was that ever damaging? Did you ever have negative social media experiences? Um, I had. I didn't. I had nothing like the horrible trolling that I saw other women get, but I still was really affected. Like, if you, if you were following any sort of uh, feminists in the public eye, what you saw happen to them was so distressing. I found it, and I couldn't really, I couldn't even deal with seeing it happen to other people. <laughs> it didn't happen to me. But the other thing about Twitter was that it um, 
Well, A, it was just a massive time suck. I'm, I'm super addicted to any sort of instant gratification. So, you know, it was I was always half living in Twitter. But the other thing was that I became way too conscious of what of what people would think of a thought in my head before it even was fully formed. So I became really sick of my own voice on Twitter, my own sort of, you know, like had to be a bit witty, a bit sarcastic, a bit um, sort of super topical, blah, blah, blah. It, it became for me a really draining performance. <laughs> and that was aside from just looking at all the revolting stuff that happened on Twitter to other people. Mm. So I just decided I had a big break at some point while I was writing The Natural Way of Things. I think I went off it for about nine months and then I came back. And then um, but once I left, it was like, oh, thank God. I had sort of space in my mind back. I had a sense of peace returned. I find Instagram is still quite distracting, I have to say. Yeah, it, and it can be. I think the difference with Instagram, and I think it's changing as well, especially with ads and everything, um, is you don't get the, well, maybe you do, but not on the people I follow, the kind of vicious sort of um, debate in inverted commas in about 50 sets of inverted commas because I don't think it is, you know, just that shouty outrage churn. And actually, you know, it can happen on Instagram, but I don't really see it. No, that's true. What about reviews, Charlotte? Have you, in terms of letting go, are you a writer who will read them or not after publication? I do read them. I... Because for me, not to read them would be to give them too much power in a way. And also, if I don't read them, I would be imagining so much more worse things than I said. <laughs> but I do have a much less attachment to reviews now. I think partly that's just getting older. I think partly it's a reviewing culture in Australia is pretty lame, for want of a better word. And also there's hardly anywhere to be reviewed. No. Um you know, in, in terms of traditional media. There really but isn't. Mm. I've also had, I mean, I've been very, very lucky with reviews. I've had great reviews and actually some really um, lengthy, intelligent reviews. They're mostly, you know, online now. But I certainly would never, 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 for example, go and look at Goodreads and what people say about me there. No. <laughs> I have learned my lesson there eons ago. Now, talking about lessons, I really enjoyed what you wrote about Susan Sontag's rules for writing. And can you talk a little bit about your own rituals that are very unique and that prepare you for writing? And again, I'm curious about how they've changed over time. Yeah, well, I, I love that Susan Sontag list. It's a list of um, sort of notes in her journals of all the things that she has to do, like, you know, get up at such and such a time, only mm. have only have lunch once a week, only take phone calls at this certain time. But what I found so hilarious in that is that each time she had little brackets, can break this rule once a week, can break this rule <laughs> twice a week. <laughs> yeah. And um and I think I say in that in that essay or chapter that um you know, I make similar lists of rules to myself all the time and then I break them and then I make a new set and then I break them. Um, but I like, I guess what I've discovered over time is that I do need to have really, really strong boundaries around time and space for writing. Um, and I do work best when I can get into that sort of slightly anticipatory curious optimism about the day ahead and that that takes a lot of practice and it's really easy to fall out of that practice mm. so you know I haven't been writing my my novel for some months now and I know when I go back to that I'm going to have to really sort of retrain my mind to not not be so not be fearful of it um, so my rituals are really I think in in the earliest the first chapter of the luminous solution I talk about uh, kind of the inner life or the writing mind as a garden and that it needs boundaries it needs certain things to be kept out of it it needs other kind of nourishments let in um, 
and the the things to keep out of it are a way too much time online so any kind of doom scrolling instagram which of course we're all doing right now which we're doing (laughs) which has been really i think quite damaging to a lot of people's Mm. creative lives like in the beginning of the pandemic people like me thought oh well this will be easy for us because it'll take away all the distractions and we just stay home like we always have and I've got a space to work and you know Mm. and yet that doom feeling in the world was so pervasive that it did really really interfere with my um you know creative mind space um but the other things that are that do sort of support my little writing ecosystem, I guess, are just the really boring things like going to bed early, getting up early, exercising, um, drinking lots of water, not drinking too much alcohol, mm. not eating too much, all that. Those physical things actually really important, I think. Um, which I never knew when I was younger. I wouldn't have paid any attention to them. But also now I'm old, I get really bad neck back pro- neck and back problems if I don't do all the Pilates and all that sort of stuff. So those things sort of set up the boundaries. And also I am quite ruthless about saying, no, I can't do, I don't have coffees or lunches with people or whatever on a writing day. Oh. I just set up my week so that, those things happen I sort of you know would have at least three days a week where I don't see anybody or do any sort of errands or whatever and then the other two days are for you know whatever the stuff you have to do to run your life plus Mm. having lunch with someone or coffee or whatever so um that's in the ideal writing situation and that's in a way why going away to the coast is also great for me because it just gets me away from what my friend sue smith the playwright and screenwriter calls she says i can't write in the city there's too much white noise yeah and there's a lot of white noise in this part of the city particularly can you tell me a bit about about how you start trusting yourself and your own intuition with writing and also trusting the people that you choose to let read the manuscript versus the wrong kind of advice because I think what you wrote as well about how advice can be damaging if it's from the wrong person, you know, in student classes that can be really problematic, you know, and even in the editorial process that can be problematic if you don't have the right editor. So tell me a bit about following your intuition and how as a writer you negotiate those times when there is difficult problematic feedback that you don't think you should take on versus what seems to resonate. Yeah, it's really tricky sometimes. I I feel like my instinct or my intuitive mind has probably always been my greatest strength, but for a long time I sort of um, forgot about it or ignored it too much. So, uh, you know, my childhood was very filled with um, making. You know, my dad was very... Um, one of those people who could really make anything, who was, you know, could make cupboards and make electrical things and make, um, you know, amazing costumes for school plays. And so he was like super talented across a lot of areas. And my mother was a florist. So, and a really beautiful gardener. So we had a sense around us that you just made what you wanted. You know, if you wanted a dress, you made it. Although, one thing my mother was not good at was making dresses and neither I was so terrible at it. But, but people around us did too, you know. Um, and you made um, food, obviously, but you made pictures and, um, you know, like I said, my dad made our furniture and stuff like that. So the idea of making was completely natural and normal to my family and everyone in my family is really um, – creative in various ways um so I sort of probably learned to trust that instinct and then sort of lost it in thinking oh well you know when I said I didn't know how to write a book because I didn't have anything to say I sort of 
didn't realize that you didn't need to know what you had to say until I did these sort of writing classes back then with Sue Wolf, who was an excellent teacher. And so I began learning to trust that your mind would do things for you if you just paid attention to it. But then I sort of lost sight of that for a while, but slowly over time, I guess, I just I started to understand that the only way I could do it was to trust my instinct. Um, so it might be something that you, you know, you, you're writing a book about, um, I don't know, um, a hairdresser. And then, so you're, you're sort of focusing on all the hairdressing stuff, but then you're out in the street and you see a child with, you know, um, I don't know, a walking, a, a kid in a wheelchair. And so you think, oh, that's interesting, but I can't go into my novel because my novel's about a hairdresser. So slowly I kind of understood that if you keep thinking about that kid in the wheelchair, it means that that's coming into your book. So it's like just trusting that your mind is landing on things or seeing certain things or tugging at certain things because they belong in what you're doing now. Um, so I'm writing a book at the moment about a, a, a contemporary nun in a contemplative order. Um, but then a mouse plague started out at my friend's you know, there's been a massive mouse plague in New South Wales, in, I think in Queensland. Um, and I was just sort of really morbidly interested in this mouse plague. So I thought, okay, the mouse plague is coming in as well. So now I've got a nun and a mouse plague. Okay, what happens then? So it's sort of bringing these things that um, you sort of wouldn't, you know, naturally think, oh, nuns, oh, there must be a mouse plague. <laughs> but I don't know if I'm making much sense here, but just sort of, I guess, trusting that the reason your mind keeps turning to particular things is because that's your that's your artistic impulse. It's telling you to pay attention to that. So I think a lot of the times we discount stuff that doesn't make sense. Um, and I think one of the things when I've done you know, bits of um, mentoring with writers, it's to say, don't shut down ideas that don't make sense. You need to let them be until a certain point where, you, where you've really kind of tested them and made sure that either you get bored with it, in which case chuck it straight away. Like there's a lot of people who write books and think, well, it's got to, it must have this, this and this in it and it's historical fiction so it's not allowed to have X, Y, Z. And my sort of teaching and mentoring has pretty much only been saying, Why? Why can't it have X, Y, Z? And then just, like, does it make you feel excited if you thought it could have X, Y, Z? And most of the time people will go, oh, yeah, that's really exciting, but but I don't think you're allowed to do that. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, you are. That's, the whole, that's what art is. Um, so just talking about the way you describe the kind of mystical side taking more of a role and, trusting those instincts and kind of stepping away from safety. I think it would be a great example as well if you could tell us what happened with the natural way of things and how that kind of shows both of those things. Yeah, well, that, you know, as I said before, that when I went into that really deep funk was mm. writing the natural way of things. And I was not I, – what, what I learned from that book was – that if you pay attention enough and if you allow it to be what it wants to be, the book will tell you how to write it. If you resist what it's sort of showing you, then it, you can't make it work. So I was writing this book, The Natural Way of Things, which was about a bunch of young women in a sort of prison in the middle of nowhere in Australia. It was slightly... Um, well, in the beginning, I was trying to write it in a very rational kind of way because I'd heard um, a documentary about the Hay Institution for Girls, which was a ghastly, brutal prison for young women that actually existed in the town of Hay in New South Wales um, in the 60s and 70s. And it was a place where young women who had um, been sexually active or sexually molested often um, were sort of locked away because of their, you know, 
basically because they were sexual beings or they'd been assaulted by somebody and they talked about it and that was not on. So it was a terrible place. So when I started writing it, I set it in sort of the time of the Hay Institution and I was writing in a very naturalistic way. And basically it was just completely dead on the page. It wasn't working at all. And it was sort of just total um, bleakness. And I sort of, out of sheer desperation, one day thought I, yeah, it basically had come to a standstill. Um, And I just sort of out of desperation just thought I'm just going to flip it to do the opposite in in whatever way I could. So at that time it was swapping from um, being set in the past to being set kind of in a slightly um, possible future. And it went from being written in a very naturalistic, in, in realism, to having this slightly surreal quality in the writing, slightly speculative. Um And then it sort of suddenly came alive for me. Like I'm not sure the writing was any better, but I was suddenly interested in it again. Um, And that's, you know, one a a process that I've found very useful, which I've in my study that's detailed in that um, chapter called um, the Grumpy Struggle. um, It it's a process called overturning or disruption, where you literally try the opposite, where you sort of throw a bomb into what you're doing (laughs) to to just blow it apart and Mm. start again um but also this whole time I was really going into kind of place of distress because I did not want to be writing this horrible bleak book about misery and darkness and misogyny Mm. and hatred of women and it started to really um affect me and I was, but the thing that really affected me was that I was resisting it so much. So it was like I didn't, I didn't want to be revealing about myself what this book was showing, which was that I had this dark stuff inside me, that I had the ability to imagine such a place. Um, you know, it wasn't nice. It wasn't something that would please people. Uh, it wasn't very acceptable in my mind to be dwelling in all this stuff and you know because I'm a woman and I was of my age and I was raised to be a nice helpful girl and Mm. this book was not nice or helpful at all so I kept trying to kind of force my way around it by changing things in other ways that just didn't work anyway once I finally accepted that well maybe this really dark stuff is actually where the gold is if you let it come just see what happens if you just instead of resisting it all the time just let it happen and then it was like an avalanche it just poured out and a lot of very dark very weird creepy strange stuff just sort of came out of my imagination but the relief in just letting it come out was so um Mm. great and then the book started working you know I could see that the writing was better I could see that it was more surprising I could and that's what we respond to isn't it it's like we can feel that energy on the page I think that's right I think energy on the page is really what we respond to most of the time Mm. and in that chapter where I talk about all these these nine ways of creative thinking one of them is that um thing called the concept of heat seeking and that is energy so it's the thing where your mind kind of keeps telling you to, well, you keep being interested in this really creepy girl's prison, even though you don't really want to be interested in that. <laughs> but that's got heat in it. And if you follow it and sort of let it um, take you, then your book will come alive. I really believe that. And it will mm. show you how to, how to write it. And sometimes you lose that heat and you have to keep refinding it. And sometimes that little sort of, seam of heat runs out and you have to find another one in the same book is it always clear to you charlotte it's clearer now that i recognize the feeling and it's almost just a bodily feeling it's like ooh, you know there's a slight sort of you know when you think of something that is a bit for me a bit kooky or 
often a bit unpleasant, like the mouse plague. I'm like, mm. ooh, ooh, that's interesting. And when you get that ooh feeling, that's heat. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I've, I've, again, when I've mentored people, they've said, oh, I go, so what have, what have you been thinking about? And they say this, this, and then, oh, there's this other weird thing, but I'm not. And I go, wait a minute, let's talk about the other weird thing. Mm. And then you can see in their in their their body language that they're interested in. And they go there. That's where the energy comes from. I love hearing you talk about this because it's also interesting to me in the sense of the different conflicts that you have as a writer. And later in the book as well, you talk about what Jude Ray in you, your interview with her called the game of keeping people engaged and the digestible versus the not digestible, the following what you want to but seems strange and perhaps coming from a mystical place. And elsewhere you talk about your dislike of the word relatable, about a book that is good because it's relatable. So there's a lot of these things going on I can see in, in that writing life and that almost the challenge of the commercial drive versus the kind of the personal drive. But the weird thing is that sometimes the thing that you think isn't commercial turns out to be the commercial thing. Exactly. Because of the heat, you can feel that energy, yeah. Exactly. And I've, you know, I've I've written books that have absolutely tanked and I've written a couple of books that have done really well. And I don't, I certainly don't think now that, because my last two books have done well, that the next one will also do well. I think that it's each book is its own creature and you can't predict, you can't manage it, and you have to try. I now, what I really learned from the natural way of things is that I have to trust that, that the book, and I know it sounds kind of silly and magical and ghostly, and I kind of am embarrassed by those sorts of ways of thinking. But I do feel like the book tells you and and also I think now after, you know, 30 years of writing, but there's no point in doing anything else. There's no point in trying to write something for a market, A, because that never works anyway, and B, you, it just dies under you, writing stuff that you think will work for other people but that you are not really interested in is just a fool's errand because it makes you miserable just going back to the idea of relatability that i i hadn't thought of it like that before really because i've never seen relatability as a as a dirty word um in a way and i was kind of wondering about the line between what is universal in a book and i think great writing actually you can relate to it even if it's difficult and challenging but there's some glimmer some heat some energy that somehow makes it universal without having to see yourself there but there's a truth that kind of sings um, and speaks to people I, I agree with that I do agree with that and the relatable thing it's kind of look it's slightly snobbish to say oh I you know I won't um I won't tolerate the word relatable I just think it's a word that is is used as a kind of catch-all and it's also a kind of lazy word. And mm. I think I say somewhere in the book that, you know, one of my fantastic English teachers, Gilly Litchfield, when I was at school, in high school, I'd, she'd say, so what are we, you know, what's going on in this book? And I'd say, oh, I really like that character because I can relate to them. And she would say, I don't care if you relate to them. Your your relating to them is of absolutely no interest. I want to know yeah. what's the language doing. What effect is it having on you? Just because you think, oh, that's like me. That's not a part of what we're doing in English class, you know. Mm. And so I think there, you know, there, there's the chapter in there that talks about this is called "Reading Isn't Shopping," and it's about it's about how there has grown up a certain um, a certain way of reading that is really tied up with um, marketing and a kind of need for a book to please me before I will be interested in it. You know, so it's the sort of thing of, and I feel a bit snooty saying this, but the kind of Goodreads model of, rating things with stars yeah. um, and and also just the social media likes 
dislikes, whatever, it's it's kind of re- reductive. And depressing, know. quite frankly. <laughs> and it's sort of, you know, it's saying, and this idea that you have to like the people in the book before you like the book yeah. is really depressing to me. And I've certainly had that from people, uh, from readers telling me that my characters are not likable, therefore it's a bad book. And I just think, okay, go read something else because I'm yeah, exactly. not interested in, you know, I don't, I don't actually, you know, many of the books that I really most cherish are ones with not nice people in them. Yeah. There's also this fairly sort of puritanical attitude towards fictional characters' behaviour. You know, like I've had people really take me to task about, the fact, for example, in, in my book The Weekend that one of the characters uh, has a long-term affair with the married man. Really? I had a, a, a reader contact, well, not even a reader because she contacted me to tell me she would not read my book because she had heard, like she really wanted to read my book and she'd enjoyed other work of mine, but she'd heard that there was someone having an affair with a married man and didn't I know what an appalling thing that was, blah, blah, blah. So it was like, wow, and it was absolutely to do with her own, you know, very sad experience basically. But also the strange thing that some readers would assume that just because there's a character in the book it means that you're <laughs> you're basically, you know, that you approve of it. It's, it's such a strange. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've, I've been taken to task for having people say, you know, um, say not nice things about other characters or use words that are not, you know, in the weekend there are three characters aged in their 70s who are not particularly um, attuned to language about things like disability or even race probably Mm. because they're in their 70s, you know, because so my point is I'm writing about people who come out of a certain age and culture and time and place, I want the, all I want them to feel is real. I don't want them to seem like good people, I'm not interested in them being good people. And actually that's where so much pleasure comes from when you're reading it. And one of the other pleasures which would be lovely to talk about um, that you also write about is the sentences that you write and, and you discuss this kind of this love of sentences and tell me about how you work on them, how you refine them. Do you read aloud? Do you prune? Um, you talk about taking out the lies, which I really liked. Yes. I do try to, I do prune a lot. I so taking out the lies is something that I um I mean it's just a kind of silly expression of my own about part of the editing process is to go through and take out anything that feels like I'm sort of faking it a bit or I'm trying to be a bit fancy or um or or I don't actually really know what it means but it sounds sort of good um I mean, there's a bit of leeway with some of that as well, but the, the the chapter on it's called the paint itself, and it, it, the title of that comes from a painter called Laurie Fendrick, an American painter, who said, "Ever since the invention of painting on canvas, the paint itself has been part of the meaning of a painting." So that that chapter is about language. The, the very language that is used is part of the meaning of a book, not just a thing to um, to talk about something. Like it's, I'm, making, I'm a bit garbled in verbalising it, but hopefully it's clear in the writing. I had a great time with my friend Tegan Bennett Daylight teaching a class about sentences and we we sort of sat around going, well, what what do we think about sentences? What are, what are the functions of a good sentence? And we came up with these five qualities that were authority, musicality, clarity, energy, and flair. And flair was kind of one of those where you, <laughs> I don't know how you get it, but you know it when you see it kind of thing. But um, we had such fun looking at sentences of other people's books going, so what is that doing? What is it saying? Um, where's the energy in it coming from and so on so it 
thinking about sentences, I mean, sometimes if you think about them too hard while you're doing them, I think that doesn't really work. But certainly in revising, I I do read aloud. I read everything aloud. I read the book aloud from beginning to end, which for me is where you can sort of catch a lot of little infelicities or rhythmic problems. Um, or you just think, yeah, that's just a bit of bullshit, that one. So, um, But it is the pleasure. That's where the pleasure is in writing, really, I think, just in getting those the weight and balance of a sentence right. Another thing you mentioned before was that you have stopped for a period writing this new book that you're working on, and you've done that once before, um, which you describe mm. as well. When you decide it's the right time to go back, how has that period, that fellow period I think you've discussed before, how does that period help your eyes on the work? Yeah, it's hard to say. With um, the weekend, I got to a point where I just stopped and I had never actually done that before where I just I came to a point where I thought, it's not working. I've tried everything I know how to do. It's not working and also, I think I was a bit burnt out, to be honest, because um, I'd been travelling and talking about the natural way of things still while I was writing this other new book. Um, anyway, I just thought I just have to leave it for six months. And I've certainly been pushed away from work for periods before through having to earn money or, you know, other things that happen. But I'd never um, chosen to stop even thinking about it so no taking notice of things no no writing any notes no making a note when I was reading going oh yes that's a good way of doing it I'll use that in my just utterly removing myself from writing impulse altogether and it was it was good going back though I didn't I didn't think, oh, now I know what to do at all. It was just like, okay, it's time to go back, kind of just because I missed it, you know. And I think all creative people have that sense of just feeling a bit queasy if they're not doing it and things just not feeling right, almost again in your body, just not feeling right in yourself if you're not doing it. So I went back to it and I had terrible, you know, at least a month of just, garbage writing and thinking oh fuck this is it I really have you know I've always dreaded this day where I have to throw a book away and now I have it anyway the only thing I could do was keep going (laughs) so I just pushed on and then then I had you know what um Janet Burroway would call the luminous solution just a realization in the shower where I often have them um like oh, I know why these, the problem at that point was I had these women in a house together but no reason for them to be there. And I suddenly realised, oh, they're there because it's their dead friend's house and they're cleaning it out for sale. And that's why they're kind of forced to be together and why there's friction and so on. So I suddenly had, it felt like the engine suddenly kicked in for that novel and then I was fine, you know. I mean, it was hard work but I didn't, but going back, certainly, it, it's not like, oh, I go away and wait and then, ah, oh, I know what to do. Now I'll go back. No, it's just go back <laughs> and try again. So in this situation, you said that you've had a few months off writing, which is totally understandable given what we're all going through. Yeah. Well, I've sort of, I haven't entirely because I was rewriting stuff for The Luminous Solution and editing it and everything. So I was still working all the time, but I wasn't writing fiction. Um this year really um but I feel that queasy feeling now like I really want to get back to it I've had little periods of you know a week here and there of doing it but then I was you know taken back to editing the luminous solution is the first thing that you're going to do when Sydney opens up go up to your house yeah in the bush (laughs) yeah go up to the coast and Mm. work and that's like I'm really, really, really keen to do that. And, you know, and I know that once I get there, I'll be like, I don't want to do this. I want to go back and see my friends and, (laughs) you know. But it'll be satisfying to just get back into the rhythm. It's Often it's all I want is the working rhythm. Even if the work is going badly, it's just being in the rhythm of 
going to the desk, sitting down, opening it up, going into that world of the book, you know, slogging out a few words. And then hopefully you get to that beautiful spot about, which happens to me usually about two-thirds of the way in where you start dreaming about it. Oh, really? And then it's like, I mean, and the dreams are completely useless. They're not like, oh, good, I can put that in the book. But they, they, they're an indicator that I'm really in, inside the book now. I liked what you were saying about your solution often being coming up in the shower. It did make me kind of wonder about other places like meditation when you meditate and how, you know, the places that ideas do come up. I've occasionally had them in meditation and, of course, I've stopped meditating again. I mean, that's something I do for months and then, you know, for some reason I don't do it and then I find it, you know, I resist going back to it. Mm. Um, Occasionally when I've been having acupuncture this is weird isn't it I've had like a real kind of spaced out um sudden little revelation it's in between kind of times and spaces yeah and it's often when you're not when you're not trying you know and again it's that thing of allowing somebody to come except as you know Joan London when I interviewed her for the writer's room she talked about stepping away from me and, and allowing the book to come. And she said, but you have to earn it. You can't, you have to have really tried hard <laughs> thinking, you know, at your desk, slogging away. Um, like for me that, and again, I sort of emphasize that it's really different for everyone. So this might happen for other people. But for me, if I just sort of wander about doing my life, I don't get ideas for writing. I have to be at the desk. I have to be there. You know, and I think various writers have talked about, you have to show up for the ideas to come. Um, And I think um, my friend David Roach, a screenwriter, told me years ago a quote from somebody else, I don't know who it was, that said, visions come to prepared spirits. And that means you turn up, you know, you have that contract to turn up to the desk, then stuff will happen but if you don't turn up nothing's going to come so they might come in the shower but it's because you're turning up at the desk each day you've dedicated this book to georgia blaine who was one of our great australian writers and i wondered if you could share a few things about georgia and what she taught you she was just such a I mean, I don't know how to talk about her without just going into sort of banal things. Like she was such a great person. She really was. Mm. She was um, supremely funny. She had a really black sense of humour. We shared a lot of very loud cackling, laughing about the kind of humiliations of the writer's (laughs) life, of which there are many when you do public events that, you know, one person turns up to or Mm -hmm. you do an interview about your book and the interviewer thinks it's somebody else's book. or um, (laughs) (laughs) And writers love to share these kind of war stories. Um, Georgia had absolutely no bullshit. She was... She had no pretensions. She And she had the guts to just write about what she wanted to write about, even though she was criticised for it. So she would often say, uh, here we go again, I'm told that I only write about middle-class white people and the women are all unlikable. And she laughed since she was saying, I really liked her, that character. <laughs> and she said, and also she's quite like me. So, you know, like what what she's being told is that um she's not likable um uh she was she was just very very forthright and honest just incredibly honest Mm. and she's so missed you know not just by me but by so so many of her friends so i've i've I wanted to dedicate the book to her and there is a chapter about her in there which was something I wrote, a profile of her that I wrote after her last novel Between a Wolf and a Dog came out, which is a fantastic book. Charlotte, could you end with reading a short extract from your your beautiful book? Sure. 
So this is from a chapter called Letting in the Light, which was about, it's about that thing of sharing unfinished work and what, you know, the kind of risks and joys, I guess, of doing that. And I, I start and end the chapter with um, Lily Briscoe, the painter in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. At the end of To the Lighthouse, Lily Briscoe's painting is finally resolved. This is a quote. With sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there in the centre. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue, I have had my vision. That final declarative mark is the one Lily has always known is needed, and yet only in that final moment can she see how to make it. Any artist, one hopes, is always groping forward to new insights, to that discovery just beyond our field of vision. With each new work, we learn essential things and are sometimes elated by the revelatory nature of those lessons. And yet, almost instantly, each time, I find the lesson sinks away to be absorbed and replaced by the lost feeling that returns as I find, yet again, that I do not know how to write this book. It's only by trudging out into that unknown space and starting work, often in the wrong place, wandering down too many false tracks, getting lost and finding my way again too many times, that I'll slowly find out. My colleague readers and I have a running joke that none of us is allowed to die until all our books have been written. We need each other, not only for company or moral support or to fix a problem in a book, but because those trusting, reaching conversations are so exhilarating, so rich. They open up the writer's mind for the definitive pattern to reveal itself at last, allowing each of us to find and mark that precious resolving line and with it bring the vision finally and fully into coherence. Charlotte, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you, Gemma. I've loved it. Uh, And to everyone listening, you can find The Luminous Solution and Charlotte's other books in all of the world's best bookshops. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Gemma. (laughs) 